0: God uses boring people. He uses humble people. He loves to use the weak, right, to confound the wise. That's who God is. That's who God is. Maybe you're in here and you're like, God can't use me. I can't sing. I'm not attractive. I can't, don't have an education. Look at me and Andrew. (laughs) Let us be examples. God loves to display His power and His glory. The point I'm getting at is, don't count yourself out. Don't count yourself out. God wants to use you. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. That's where we're going gonna, we're gonna to keep on keeping on with our um, study through the book of Jonah. This book is rocking my world, okay? I don't know about you guys, but this book is just like stuff I've never even noticed, never even seen before. The wonderful, timely theologian, Pastor Andrew, has been just dissecting this thing, and it's been awesome. So I hope that this is just as awesome. Jonah chapter 3. Why don't we read together, and then we can pray, and we'll get started. Let's read. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. So it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in its width, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much. Just for books in the Bible like this, Lord, that challenge us, that, that shape us, Lord, that make us more um, into who you're calling us to be, Lord, we pray that we would see Christ in these scriptures, Lord, we want to leave here, Lord, changed by your Holy Spirit, um, even as Brian was praying, Lord, that as, uh, that as we're here today, we want a clear glimpse of you, of your glory, of all who you are, knowing that when, when we get a clear view of you, Jesus, everything else fades away. All the worries, all the anxieties, all the cares, God, they all are eclipsed by your glory and by your nature and who you are. And so that's what we want, a fresh glimpse of you, God. And so here we are, Lord, you know our hearts, you know what state we came in here. With Lord, and we pray that that um, that you would just you would be the great I am, Lord. All that we need, all that we could have hoped for, Lord, and that you would be truly as as you are enough for us, Lord, and and that you would move in a mighty way through your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, "Amen, Amen." Amen. Well, it was the early seventeen hundreds, and the once dream of the Christians who first arrived here. In North America, on the Mayflower, with their desire to, for this land to be a godly nation, well, that dream was quickly fading. The ch- their children and their grandchildren, who were now adults, were being swept up by wild lawlessness. And the idea of living for God and chasing after holiness was left behind them as instead they chased after the comforts of wealth. Citywide drunkenness and a declining morality within the towns. One man witnessing the state of the church within the 1700s um, in these new colonies, he wrote this quote, "Christianity lay as it were dying, and ready to expire its last breath of life. And so with a culture of godlessness and a church attendance that was practically <laughs> zero, And all the odds against him, a 30-year-old Jonathan Edwards began preaching in Northampton, Massachusetts, and his message was quite simple. It was a seriousness of the gospel, a seriousness of sin, and the need for people to be born again, and that's when it happened. And it started with the youth of the town. Children, young men, young women started giving their lives to Christ in great numbers. Onlookers who were seeing this all happen were baffled because if anyone knew Jonathan Edwards, he was not a charismatic speaker at all. Rather, he was the opposite. He was known for speaking in a style that seemed to take a low voice, very monotone, steady talking. However, the power of God's word had pierced the hearts of those in the towns and the neighboring cities To where chapels could not hold the amount of people that were coming to hear the gospel. Which led to open air preaching, sometimes to somewhat 30,000 people at a time outside. Revival had struck America. And it had struck so deep that it was even recorded that as you would walk at night, you would hear from house to house and family to family singing hymns of joy to God throughout the streets. Tens of thousands of people turned their hearts back to Jesus during this time, which was known as the Great Awakening. And as we step into this third chapter of Jonah, Jonah is about to experience, and what we're about to read and what we even read, one of the greatest revivals that was ever recorded in all of history is recorded here in Jonah chapter 3. Now, remember remember where we are in this book, okay? It's good for us to kind of get context of what's happening, all right? We know Jonah's story. If you've been with us for, for as, as long as we've been going through this book, you know, or if you know any sort of <laughs> Bible stories from kids, maybe when you're in, uh, in children's ministry or anything like that, you know the story of Jonah, right? God calls him. He runs in the opposite direction, and And ends up getting thrown overboard on a ship and swallowed by a fish in there for three days. And out from the belly of the fish, he cries out for God to be merciful to him. And God commands the fish to vomit Jonah on the shore. And this is where we pick up here in chapter 3. As Jonah... Immediately after this event, he's covered in seaweed, no doubt completely disoriented after spending three days inside of a dark fish being digested, <laughs> okay? And we look here at verse, look, look, at, look at verse 10, actually verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. It says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on dry land. Then verse 1 of um, chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. We are about to witness, and what we have witnessed, is some of the greatest examples of God's grace in the Bible. I mean, look at this right here. Those words that that chapter 3 starts off with, the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. Did you know today that we serve a God of second chances. We serve a God of third chances. We serve a God of twelfth chances. Romans 5 20, I have the scripture up here. Romans 5 verse 20 says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That actually what that what that Greek word means in there when Paul writes it, he says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That there's no sin out there that God's grace does not cover, does not envelop, does not wrap around. And look at Lamentations chapter 3. I also have the scripture up here. Chapter 3, verse 22, it says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Did you know that? God's steadfast love for you doesn't stop. He doesn't stop caring about you. He doesn't stop loving you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come, new, come to an end. They are. I love this phrase. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Man, if you are like me, which aware of how much we need Jesus every day, man, we need fresh mercy, fresh grace every day. And I love this, like we, right here what we see in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, that the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. God didn't write Jonah off. He didn't tell him, you know what, you're done, dude. I can't use you anymore because of your failures. God didn't write Jonah off. But he also didn't lower his standard for Jonah. Right? He's not like, okay, you know, here's grace. And you actually... I know what I said before was a little harsh and was a little difficult to follow. You don't have to do that anymore. You can actually just keep running away and just share the gospel with whoever you come in contact with. That God didn't lower his standards with him either. Because one thing that God wants is not abusive grace. He wants faithful obedience out of us. He wants faithful obedience from us. And that's an important key When revival comes, what God does through revival, through his church, and this is the first thing, God restores his people to faithfulness. When revival truly hits, God restores his church to faithfulness. Faithfulness to prayer, faithfulness to the word of God, faithfulness to the worship of God, and faithfulness to the gospel. And here in this story, we're seeing Jonah's getting offered a a new beginning, a second chance. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that God gave me a second chance, that he didn't give up on me. You know, there's this quote. I have it up here by George H. Morrison. He says, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. In other words, every day we're asking God, God, forgive me. God, I need need a fresh start again today, right now, for this moment. I need you. I can't do it without you. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. So awesome. And what does God tell him? He tells him the exact same thing he told him in chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, and preach to them the message that I'll tell you. He tells them the exact same thing. And I love this because it, it tells us that God didn't want Jonah to share his own ideas or his own thoughts about who God was. God told Jonah, go there, and I'm going to tell you clearly the message that I want you to speak and this should encourage us, at least it encourages me, we need, as Christians, if you're a Christian in here, if you're following after Jesus, we need to preach the pure gospel. Unstained from our own ideas, uninterrupted from our own thoughts of, of, that, of anything. We can't treat the gospel like a salad bar, right? You, you know, if, if my wife knows me, there's certain things that I just don't like to eat. She loves them. Pickles, stuff like that. Mayonnaise, different weird, weird stuff that I'm like, oh, ranch? Oh, man. I was scarred when I was little, I'm sorry. This might offend some of you, okay? But I had a sibling that would just douse everything in ranch and I hated it from that moment on along with my hatred for that person. No, I'm just joking. There's, you know, and so whenever I go to the salad bar and I'm, you know, as you can tell, right, I'm, you know, I'm joking. Um, whenever I go, to, when I, you know, when you, whenever I go there, ranch is something I skip. I'm like, mmm, balsamic vinegar and maybe Italian, you know. I don't, ranch just can't do it. But we can't treat the gospel like that. We can't pick out the parts that we don't like and only talk about the things that we do like. God wants us to preach the pure gospel the entirety of the gospel to live out the whole gospel, because for Jonah, he what he just experienced from God, right in chapter two, was what grace but also truth. Those two together. John chapter one, Jesus said, "I come. I came to bring grace and truth." You know, they say. Um, I think um, I can't remember who it is. It says that love without truth or grace without truth, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. But truth without grace or truth without love, it's brutality. You need them both together, okay? Grace and truth. Jonah had just experienced grace and truth, and God was now calling him and saying, that message that I just preached to you, that I just pulled you out of, I'm calling you to go do the same thing to Nineveh. I'm calling you to do that. And so, Jonah, verse 3, look what it happens. Probably the coolest words in the world. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. The guy finally obeys. The first time Jonah obeys God. We see it right here. Chapter, three chapters later. He goes, it says there, he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah finally obeys God. That's a step in the right direction, right? There's blessing when you obey God, okay? There's blessing when you obey the word of God. He doesn't want us just to be Christians that come and we sit in church and we hear, you know, good teachings or maybe like tonight, bad teachings, whatever you might think, you know. He's not people that come. He doesn't want us to just sit here, get poured into, and we do nothing with our lives. God's desire is that his word would change our actions, change who we are from the inside out. He wants us to be obedient To the word of God. Jesus said that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You'll follow after them. Obedience is huge in what it looks like to follow after the Lord. 1 Samuel 15:22, there's a story of King Saul. I think Andrew was talking about it a couple messages ago, and he mentioned about it how God had told Saul to wipe out a nation completely. And Saul was like, all right, let's do this. He just became king. And he's like, oh, we're going to do this, yeah. And so they go there, and he wipes them out, and then he sees some stuff that he likes. He's like, those goats, they're looking pretty cool. That sheep right there, wow. Oh, man, look at the king. He's bowing down before me, begging for his life. Oh, I'll keep these guys alive, you know. I'll keep, I'll keep these for myself. And the prophet Samuel appears to him, and he's like, hey, did you do what God told you to do? And he's like, Yeah. I obeyed the Lord. I followed after him wholly, completely. And Samuel's like, well, what is, what is that bleeding of the sheep the bah, that I'm hearing in the background right now? And why is the king of Agag sitting over there in chains? Didn't God tell you to wipe everything out? And what happens you get when you, we get confronted with sin? Like, we do like what Saul did. He makes excuses. He's like, oh, well, the people... The people, wanted, the people wanted the sheep. The people, they were like, wow, that's a nice sheep. I guess that's a lamb. Is that the right term for a single sheep? A lamb? Man, I don't know. Maybe I'm sorry. Anyways, they're like, wow, that's nice. We're going to keep that. And he's making this excuse, making this excuse to where Samuel had to be the one that killed King Agag. And from that place of disobedience, Samuel speaks these words to Saul in First Samuel 15, and he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, he answers his own question, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. What he's basically getting at is he's saying, hey, you can play church all you want, but if you're not living inward obedience, God, which God sees, that's what he desires from us. That's what he wants from us. And God blesses obedience, guys. God blesses obedience. Has God told you to do something? Maybe you're in here today and you're being reminded of that, the word of the Lord that came to you maybe. And it was maybe like Jonah did. And maybe it was a long time ago. God spoke something to you. God gave a vision of faith for you to follow in something. Or God revealed sin in your life that he wanted you to cut out, that he was calling you to confess. Are you walking in obedience to those things, to his word? God wants to bless you, but he blesses obedience. He blesses obedience. And then look on what it says in verse 3. So Nineveh, at the end of verse 3, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in its width. Nineveh was about 500 miles from Jerusalem. So in order for Jonah, where he was spit up, in order for him to travel to Nineveh, it probably took him about a month to walk there, okay, a really long time, pretty sure that seaweed had fallen off and all that ugly stuff, whatever, he, it took him about a month to travel there from where he was, and the relationship between Nineveh and Jerusalem was not good, okay, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who was a world empire at that time, and Nineveh, if you care about history at all or anything about the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we find out that Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. right? And Nimrod was this guy who was the great-grandson of Noah. Oh, that's a familiar name, right? So, um, but this guy was a completely wicked dude. All right? He, like, would hunt people, like, for fun. It was a really wicked, wicked guy. And he's the guy who founded the city of Nineveh. And this city was wealthy. It was influential, and it was a huge city, right? It says here, it was, a, it was such a big city, it took three days for you to walk around this city in completion. It was so huge. Actually, they, they found historical ruins of the walls of Nineveh, and they, the walls were so wide that they said that you could ride three chariots side by side on these walls of this city. That's how big this city was. And a big city means a lot of people. A lot of people in, in, um, in chapter 4 of Jonah, God would say that there were 120,000 who didn't know their right hand from their left hand in verse 11 in chapter 4. Which some commentators believe that what God is talking about was kids. Kids who didn't know that. And so if there was 120,000 kids, that would mean that it's estimated that the population of Nineveh at this time and the area surrounding it was somewhere around 1 million people. All right? So big city Tons of people, and this city was an enemy of Jerusalem. They hated Israel. They always sought ways to harm Israel, besieging their cities, deporting Israelites. Eventually, God would use, if you ever read the book of Jeremiah, when he's preaching to the nation of Israel, and they're not listening, and eventually they go into captivity, guess which nation takes them into captivity? It's the Assyrians. God uses this nation, ultimately, to judge his people, to discipline his people, to put them in exile and if there was a symbol that would define a flag let's say that would define Nineveh it would probably be a flag with a pyramid of skulls on it because that's what they would do to their defeated enemies by their um, the entrance of their gates they would stack their skulls in a pyramid right next to their entrance gates I mean their wickedness was so so vile. They were violent beyond measure. They were known for skinning their enemies alive. They were known for even impaling their victims alive, leaving them in the desert to burn and cook in the desert sun. It was a scary thing to be an enemy of Nineveh. The foundation of the city's success was built upon that one thing, violence and wickedness. Okay, And this is where God is calling this prophet to go and preach. How, how terrifying is that, right? <laughs> I've always thought like, oh, Nineveh is just another city, you know, no big deal. You know, it's kind of like us going down, you know, to, I don't know, Oceanside, you know. Maybe Oceanside's scary for you or something, you know. <laughs> you know, but they're like, oh, do you know, it's nice, you know, whatever. Um, this was not like that at all. This was like going into a terrorist country and them knowing that you're the enemy and preaching the gospel out loud, calling out loud in the streets to them. Verse four, let's look at what verse four says. So it says, Jonas began to go into the city. Look at this, this is so cool. Go into the city, he went about a day's journey in, so he's about a third of his way <laughs> touring the city, and he calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's his message. And what we see right here is a picture of where revival begins. Where does revival begin? How do, if your desire is to see revival in this Day and age, you're tired of hearing your parents maybe talk about, oh, the Jesus movement was so awesome. Oh my gosh, this is amazing people, you know, coming out. And it was awesome. But I don't know about you, but I get tired of hearing the stories. I want to live it. I want to live it out. I want to see God do that. I want to see God save my unsaved friends, see God pull people out of the domain of darkness and into his light out of drugs, out of alcohol, out of sex, out of this culture that's so wicked and antichrist, and pull them into salvation. Revival first begins with the people of God, just like it began with Jonah. God had to restore Jonah's heart before he sent Jonah to bring revival to Nineveh. It starts with us. It starts with you and me here today. If you want to see change around you, you got to first experience change within your heart. And so Jonah does this amazing thing. He starts preaching a very short and simple message. It's only five words in the Hebrew. He basically says, hey, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's all. You know, some people are kind of split on this. Commentators will kind of go back and forth saying, oh, this was all he said. And some say, oh, well, this was just a summary of what he said. His message was longer or whatever. All we know is he preached that, right? He preached 40 days, this city's going to be destroyed. That's all that's written there. And look what revival brings. We see that revival brings an unusual effectiveness in the witness of God's people. Just like that story of of the great awakening of of Jonathan Edwards, right? This guy was a super boring dude. Maybe like some of you guys, like, oh, you're crashing out. You're like, Zach, you know, like, but God uses boring people. He uses humble people. He loves to use the weak, right, to confound the wise. That's who God is. That's who God is. Maybe you're in here and you're like, God can't use me. I can't sing. I'm not attractive. I can't, don't have an education. Look at me and Andrew. (laughs) Let us be examples of, of how God, like, Brian, Look at this guy, man, everything, you need to find out, you need to hear this guy's testimony, what God has done in his life, and the fact that he's doing what he's doing, leading worship. It's nothing but the grace of God, and he, will, and he will testify to that. God loves to use weak people to display his power and his glory. You think he likes to use the Justin Biebers of the world, the Kanye Wests? No, he could care less. Not that he doesn't love them, he does love them. The point I'm getting at is don't count yourself out. Don't count yourself out. God wants to use you. And just like here, what, I mean, three things that I pull out from this little short message that this short sermon that Jonah gives is we need great simplicity, we need great authority, and we need great eagerness in preaching the gospel. We need to preach the simple gospel, simplicity, When we talk, I think sometimes we use so much Christianese language when we talk to other believers, we're like, have you been washed in the blood? And they're like, whoa, (laughs) vampire, (laughs) get away from me. (laughs) You know, like, hey, get to their level. We're called to be ambassadors, the Bible says. Ambassadors have to know two languages, the language of their home country and the language of the country that they're an ambassador in. If they only know the language of their home country, people in this country that they're living in, they're not going to understand them, right? But if they only know the language of the country they're living in and not their home, they're not able to relay the message to this country. We need to be fluent in both languages. We need to reach people, find common ground, just like Paul did, right, when he's in the book of Acts, when he's at Mars Hill, seeing all these idols and there's one idol that's there, just in case they forgot, they're like, it's to the unknown God, and what does Paul do? He's like, oh yeah, let's go. He goes up to, all, to Mars Hill top where everyone loves to talk about high, you know, high topics and it's basically like the TED Talk of, of the ancient day. And he goes, hey, you know that statue of that unknown God that you have over there in the circle square or whatever? They're like, yeah. He's like, that's the God I've come to preach. The God who created heaven and earth. Middle ground, finding a middle ground to preach the gospel. Preach the simple gospel. A good way to to kind of test yourself, if you can do that, can you explain the gospel to a five-year-old? Can you explain it to a five-year-old? Can you explain it that simply? Preach the simple gospel, because it is that simple. Simplicity, great simplicity. We also need great authority as well. You know, we're not preaching a social club, okay? We're not selling cookies door-to-door, and we're just like, you know, like, we're preaching the words of God, like, we need great authority when we, when we preach these things. We need to understand that these are his words, not ours, and that his words do not return void, that they complete the purpose in which they were intended to do. And so we need to go out there with the authority, not in ourselves, not in who we are, but in the authority of the word of God and the spirit of God and the power of Christ and what he's done in our lives. Great authority. There's power in the gospel, man. There's power in the gospel. If you're saved here today, you've experienced the power of the gospel. You've seen your life go from death to life. You've seen that, what it looks like, and I know what it looks like, where you wake up the next morning and you're like, my sins are forgiven. No guilt. All that shame, all that hiding, all that ugliness that was attached to me is gone. I'm clean. Man, you've experienced the beauty of it. There's power, there's authority in the gospel. We need great authority. And lastly in there, we need great eagerness. Man, we need to be eager about the gospel. We can't be half-hearted. We can't be apathetic about it. We can't be falling asleep while people are dying without hearing the gospel. We need eagerness. I I love what Charles Spurgeon said, and I have the the quote up here because it's so jarring. But he says, Charles Spurgeon, he says here, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. I mean, you want eagerness, geez. I think it was the Salvation Army, the, the guy who started the Salvation Army, which started as a gospel outreach, for every soldier that he had that he would send out to preach the gospel, he said, if there's one thing I could do before I send them out, I wish I could hang them over the fires of hell so that they could hear the torment and, the, and know the eagerness of what awaits those that don't know Christ, that are living in, in rejection of the gospel. We need that great eagerness. That great eagerness. And look at what a five word sermon does. Verse five, I love this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believe God. Don't you love this? The unexpected happens, they believe God. The people who were enemies, the people who Jonah might have thought, man, they're way too far gone. You know, do you know people like that? Do you drive by people like that? Do you have people like that living in your neighborhood? You're like, nah, that, guy's, wait, that girl's way too far gone. No one is too far gone. God loves them all. He's put you there for a reason, just like we see here. He's put Jonah here, and they believe God. They don't believe Jonah. They're not become Jonahites. They're not like, sweet, let's start a church called J- Jonah, the fish guy, you know? Tell us the story again. <laughs> you know, they don't start something like that. They, they turn to Elohim. That's what the word is. They turn to God, which means the God, who create, the creator of heaven and earth. They turn to God through faith. Romans ten nine. if you don't know this verse, it's a great verse to memorize when you're sharing the gospel. It says, if you confess with your mouth that, the, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. That God raised them from the dead. You will be saved. Belief. Belief. And, and it's crazy, right? This guy's only been walking in the town for one day. It says it takes three days to get throughout this whole city. He's been, only been walking there for one day. And what happens? All the people, it says that they call a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, right? We read about the king. He ends up putting into law. All this crazy stuff, from the greatest of them to the least of them, revival affects everyone. Even the king we see here, like he steps off his throne, he removes his robes of honor, says that he puts sackcloth on him, he sits in a pile of ashes, and he starts mourning for his sin. And if there's one thing that revival truly brings, true revival brings a realization of sin. It brings a realization of what sin does in your life. And the whole city saw their own sin, not the way that they saw it. They saw it the way God sees sin. The way God saw sin affect Adam and Eve, his, crea- his creation, who he desired to have a relationship with, how sin drove them away. Separation in their relationship. God saw that. God saw how sin leads to death. That's the product, the effect of Sin. They understood, even as David would say in Psalm 51 verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, and dead one is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This was after David had sinned with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet had to, comf- had to confront him for his sin. And the first thing that David does, he doesn't go over to Bathsheba's family. Oh, I'm so sorry. He doesn't go over to Nathan. Oh, I'm so sorry. He doesn't go to his, the, the nation of Israel that he's leading. He's like, guys, forgive me. The first thing that he does is he realizes sin, first of all, is an offense to God. It's an offense to him. It's seeing it for how it is, the way God sees it. And I love this, man. You read this passage here in Jonah, and though the word repentance isn't, isn't mentioned at all, you see it all over it. You see it all over it. They, the Ninevites give a true example of what true repentance is. It's belief paired with action. Okay? It's not just the hype of like, oh yeah, Jesus is so awesome. You know, and you're at the church camp and you're jumping up and down, and it's like the Friday night or the Saturday night of church camp and you're crying and you're like, ah, you know, oh my gosh, you know, and you're as amazing as those nights are, like, I, God has moved in those. But it's, I'm saying it's not, it doesn't just stop there, you know? Because if you've gone to church camp, if you've gone to you know, junior high, high school camp, you know what it's like when you come down the mountain and your sin's waiting for you there, right? All that temptation that you left behind is still there. Do you follow in obedience in it? Do you, oh, you, and you fight and you wrestle with that? True repentance is belief in action. There's, there's an action that goes with it. James 2.26 says that just as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, Faith without action, without works, it's dead. It's dead. It means nothing. If your faith doesn't affect your life, then it's false faith. It's false faith. You know who also believes that Jesus is king and lord of the universe? The demons, James would write. He says they believe and they tremble. But they have a false faith because it didn't lead to action. It didn't lead to action in their life. But here, the Ninevites, man, they're repenting, they're fasting, wearing burlap, which is this sackcloth. It's like goat's hair, all right? They're wearing all this random clothing that's supposed to symbolize sorrow and mourning and death because they knew. You know what's so interesting? I saw it in here. Their violence and their wickedness was so public, right? Stack of skulls, spearing people in the middle of the desert, leaving them to cook, like, kebabs. Like, their, their wickedness was so public that their repentance was public. The repentance was great. You know, you know who I think of, too? That, that was, that's a story that's just like this in the Gospels, is where Jesus saves Mary, right? And you know Mary, who had been plagued by so many demons and so, many, so much wickedness, and she's there crying, wiping Jesus' feet with, with her hair and like just crying, crying, and they're like, Mary, get away, what are you doing? And they're criticizing her, and Jesus says, hey, he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much loves much. And we see here that the Ninevites are realizing: God, we don't deserve your forgiveness. Our sin was so great, and the repenting, the repentance is great. Jesus would also, during the gospels, actually pretty interesting that he would affirm the sincerity of their repentance in Matthew 12:41. Look what Jesus says in, in Matthew 12:41. He says, the men of Nineveh, when he's talking to the unbelieving Jews who are rejecting him, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment day with this generation, and they'll condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. How crazy is that? Jesus preaching the gospel and the Jews, the Pharisees that are rejecting him. No, no, no. And Jesus is saying, hey, one day on the day of judgment, those who repented in Nineveh are going to judge you guys. Because they believed the word of a, of a flimsy prophet. But Jesus, the true king, the prophet, you're rejecting him. Jesus affirmed their, their repentance there. The hearts of, of the citizens were truly changed. And you see it even changed the politics of Nineveh. How rad is that? Nineveh, the king, he writes into law, right? Everyone's got to fast, even the cows. It's crazy. He's like, even the cows got to wear burlap and sackcloth. It's like, okay, it's, yeah, Maybe the cows sinned. I don't know. Can animal sin? Ask Andrew. That's a great question for Andrew over there. Um, but they did this because they understood that their wickedness deserved death. They understood that. They understood that their sin deserved death. And so in verse 9, I mean, even the king, right, he says in verse 9, he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he's praying, and he's like, who knows if God will even forgive us? Who knows? And they're just doing it like, they're like, Gah. And I think what, what, I, what I learned from here is that true repentance has hope in the mercy and love of God. True repentance hopes in the mercy and the love of God. The people of Nineveh knew that their wickedness deserved Destruction. And you know what? The gospel won't mean anything to you until you see your sin the way that God sees it and you realize what it costs him. The gospel won't mean anything to you unless you see that, unless you see it that way. But the bad news of our sin, right, leads, leads to the best news ever. That in the state of hopelessness and feeling lost, we learn that even as Jesus said in Luke 19, he said that I've come to save, to seek and to save the lost. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only Begotten son, that whoever would believe faith in him, that they won't perish, they won't be destroyed, won't be overthrown, but instead they'll be given eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news. And verse 10, this is where we're gonna close right here, verse 10, how rad is this? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Man, what is God's response to this wicked, sinful nation crying out in repentance to him? Is he sitting up there and being like, it's about time, you know, tapping his foot? Come on, you know, maybe if you guys start... Stop stabbing people and leaving them to cook. You know, maybe if you knock over that pyramid of skulls in the front, you know, yard or whatever, you know, like, then you can come to me and then I'll forgive you, you know. But no, God's response to them, to them crying out is mercy. Mercy. Their sins deserved ultimate judgment. Their sins deserved judgment. And they knew it, but instead they received Mercy. Some would say mercy triumphs over judgment here. Some would say. But it's a little joke for Andrew. Um, But it did. It did. Mercy won. God showed them mercy. True repentance doesn't try to convince God to forgive. But instead, it appeals to his character. It's not trying to beg God, God, please forgive me. True repentance says, God, you're a merciful God. I'm appealing to your character. I know who you are. I know who you are, Lord. And God acted, you know, God's not acting inconsistently to his nature. here. He's not like, I guess I won't destroy. You You guys are kind of cute, especially you with the spear over there and the little skull, you know, tassel thing, whatever you're wearing. I don't know. (laughs) Necklace. (laughs) You're pretty cute. I'm going to keep you. No. (laughs) God's not, like, inconsistent with who he was. In Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, look at this verse. Check this out. God says this. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up, break down, and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. Same word right there used of the disaster that I intended to do with it. This is God's character. This is God's character. You know, sadly, you find out that Nineveh ends up turning back into lawlessness and wickedness. Like 150 years later, that's what the, the book Nahum, the prophet Nahum, is all about. He's prophesying against Nineveh, and God ends up judging Nineveh. Because those descendants after this, this generation, they forget what God did. They forget that God forgave them. But it's a wonderful thing to understand that God is a merciful God. That he's a merciful God. Like Micah 7 verse 18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin, forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. Thank God he doesn't stay angry forever. But you, look at that. You delight to show mercy. Man, he's eager to forgive. His, he delights in being merciful to us. Did you come in here burdened by sin burdened by guilt, burdened by shame. God delights in showing mercy. He's waiting for you to turn to him. His desire is good for you. He's a merciful God. And how can this not point back to the cross, right? How can this not point back to the gospel? We are the nation of Nineveh. We are. We're enemies of God, running away from him. Wicked in our sin and violent in our thoughts. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. If you've lusted after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. What Jesus was getting at is saying, sin isn't just outward, what you do with your hands, what you see with your eyes. It's your heart. It it begins in the heart. The heart of the problem is your heart. It begins there. We are, Nineveh, wicked, undeserving of God's mercy but Jesus experienced judgment for us on the cross, and now we receive forgiveness of sins, relationship with him. That's us. That's the gospel, seen, the gospel according to Jonah <laughs> here. And so in this chapter, the greatest revival ever recorded happened where? In one of the most wicked cities ever. Isn't that rad? Doesn't that give you hope for, like, California, you know, where we live, and even some of these rad, crazy places. Like, doesn't that give you hope? Like, this is where revival happened. This is where revival, and guess who God used to bring revival? A renegade prophet running from him? So, so unlike what we think, right? But God, like I said before, God loves to use the weak. God loves to surprise us. That's who he is. That's how he displays his power. You know, if this book was, were to end right here on chapter 3, Jonah will go down as one of the greatest prophets of God. If it were just to be like, the end! And everyone, you know, and you're like, ah, Jonah, Jonah. You know, and be like, yeah, this is such a great book, Andrew. Awesome. Ends on a high note. I won't ruin it. Come next week to find out what happens. <laughs> but I'll give you a little preview of what next week is going to be. What happens, if the book ended here, it would be amazing, but we're going to be reminded next week that God doesn't just care about outward obedience. He looks at the heart, right, like we're saying. He looks at the heart of his people. And we're going to see the heart of Jonah exposed in chapter 4. You're going to see it. And you're going to see what's there was not what you thought would be. And so as we close, I just want to ask these last three questions. Maybe you're in here tonight and you're like, man, I feel disqualified because of the things that I've done, the practices that I've committed, what I'm currently struggling with, my past, what I grew up in, what my parents raised me to be, the house that I have to go back home to, and you feel like, how could God love me? How could God forgive me? Let this story of Jonah encourage you that no one is never too far away from experiencing God's mercy and His grace. That you're not, you're never too far gone. Have you ever stabbed your enemy and let him cook in the sun? <laughs> no, uh, no. You're not too far gone, So You have a stack of skulls, you know, of all your uh, all the bullies that used to bully you in elementary school, right outside your door, your dorm room. Nope, don't, Zach. God wants to restore you. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. God's grace is enough. He wants to revive your heart. I would encourage you, give your your heart to Jesus. Cry out to him. There's no special prayer to pray. You don't have to follow a prayer even that I say. You can cry out from your own heart, from your own voice, Lord, forgive me. I believe in you, Jesus, right? Romans 10, like we just read. If you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, it's as simple as those two things, confessing and believing, you will be saved. So if you feel disqualified, let Jonah encourage you in that. The last two questions are for those of us that are in this room that call ourselves followers of Jesus. And we're here and we're like, yeah, I want to live for Jesus. Yes. First question I would ask you guys is, are you preaching and living out the gospel? Are we preaching and living out the gospel? Let Jonah, the book of Jonah, remind us That we're called to preach the simple, authoritative gospel with eagerness to a lost world that's dying to hear grace, that's dying to hear mercy, that's dying to hear love, true love. Are we doing that? Are we living it out? And the second question I would ask you guys for followers of Jesus is, are you pleading with God for revival? Do you want to see revival? Do you want to experience revival? You know, what we experienced this past, if you've been, um, I know so many people have started coming to Calvary, like, just this past year during everything, but if you've seen, maybe you've been here longer than that, pre-pandemic, and you've seen what God's done, even just in our little congregation here, you can see that something's happening. God's stirring something up. The Spirit of God is so eager to save people. Every Sunday, John's giving the gospel, and people are getting saved. Maybe you got saved there, and you're like, yeah, I, I. I was just going to the outlet mall, going to check out Nike, maybe shop some H&M. Next thing I know, I'm weeping at the front of the altar in front of PJ and giving my life to Christ. Like, God is so eager to save. Are you, Christian, pleading with God for revival? I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones, and yes, I stole this from Tim Chaddock, but it's so good. Listen to this quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He said, conservatives would rather work to reform church theology and practice. Intellectuals doubt supernatural intervention. Rationalness, they dismiss emotional enthusiasm. All convene committees and organize campaigns, but few will plead for revival. Are we the few that would plead to God that he would revive us again? Let's be that generation, amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that your desire is for mercy. Lord, your desire is to save. Lord, you showed it on the cross of Christ. God, forgive us, Lord, for those of us in here today. God, maybe like we find, we find ourselves in that place, Lord, where we feel disqualified from you. Lord, we feel like we're unworthy. Lord, and the truth of the matter is we are. Sin has such a deadening effect on us. A, such a destroying effect on our life, God, and we're here and we're experiencing the effect of it all, God, and we're asking you, Lord, to forgive us. Some of us here in this room, maybe we were in that place. Cry out from your heart for forgiveness to the Lord. Call out to Him. Ask plead, appeal to his character. He's a merciful God. He loves you. He wants to restore you. He wants to give you new life. He doesn't want to just make bad people better. He wants to make dead people live. He wants to give you life and life more abundantly. God, so I pray for those here in this room that they would call and cry out to you and they would experience that life. Lord, and for uh, the others of us, Lord, maybe in here that do know you, that are walking with you, God, I, I pray that you would give us that eagerness, Lord, to share your gospel, your love with others. Help us just to get past, Lord, all the, the, the scariness of what it is to speak to a stranger. Lord, help us to put our fears aside and to understand that people's souls are hanging in the balance. God, I I even believe tonight here, Lord, that you're calling and you're marking some, just like you did Paul and Barnabas. Lord, you're calling them for a greater calling than what they're doing right now. That even as Paul and Barnabas were praying and and were worshiping you, that Holy Spirit, you spoke to them and you called them and you commissioned them out to the mission field. I believe there's some in here, Lord, today that you're marking, you're calling to rise up, to be courageous, to be bold. I pray, Father, that you'd help them to be obedient to that calling, to not be like Jonah, to not run, but to follow after you wholly, completely, Lord. And we do plead. We want to be part of those, Lord, that cry out for revival. Lord, we understand that your spirit's doing such a sweet work here, and we pray that it would continue. We don't want to let sin disrupt what the Spirit of God wants to do in our life. Lord, we understand that there's enough wickedness and flesh nature within us that can destroy every good thing that God has done in our life. So we don't wanna give a place for sin, Lord, but rather we wanna walk in the Spirit so that we're not f- fulfilling the lust of the flesh. God, so bring revival, Lord. Do it with us. Revive us, God, and revive South County. Lord, all the churches that are gathered in this, in this city, do a mighty outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, we want to see it, Lord. We're so, we're just, we're, we don't want to hear about it anymore, God. We want to live it. We want to see you do amazing things, see you save, Lord. We understand that the time is short, Jesus. And so use us and let you, and just let your name be glorified, Lord. Everywhere, Lord, and, and from all tongues and nations and peoples. Thank you that you love the world, Lord. Thank you that you love us. I pray this in Jesus' name.